I don't know how many of you have ever been asked to share your personal testimony, uh, which is the story of how you came to know Jesus and, and, and what He's done in your life. Um, I've had to do this a number of times, and even more times than that, I've had to go up to people and ask them if they'd be willing in some context or in front of some group to share their personal testimony, their story of how Jesus has impacted their life. And, and one of the most common responses I get when I ask someone to share a testimony is this, well, I guess I can do that, but my testimony isn't very exciting. You know, I mean, wh- are you sure people would want to hear it? I, I think that's because we, we assume that the most powerful testimonies are the most dramatic ones, right? You know, I'd, I started selling drugs when I was four years old and... and, and and it was all downhill from there, man. And then I got to be 19 years old, and I was on a bridge, and I was about to jump off and end it all, and a, uh, the wind blew this piece of paper to my feet, and it had John 3.16 on it. And, and I, I read the paper, and I, and I came down from the bridge and gave everything to Jesus, and my life since then has been just a series of miracles, one after another, right? Don't you love those testimonies? And so people will say, well, my testimony isn't like that either in the dramatic conversion story or in the series of miracles after that. In fact, my story is kind of boring compared to that. And in a way, my story is messier because I've stumbled and fallen so many times, even after becoming a Christian, why would anybody be interested in my story? And my answer to that is always, that is exactly the kind of story that people need to hear. Yes, the, the more dramatic testimonies definitely have their place. I think God uses them in a really unique way, and they bring glory to Him. But your supposedly uninteresting testimony is actually one that more people can relate to because they want to know what God does in the life of a normal, everyday person. And for most people, that's who they think they are. I want you to keep that in mind while we look at the life of the person that we're going to meet for the first time today. Because this is a person who I think, you know, he's pretty famous, um, and he's done a lot, but, but, but he's also definitely got feet of clay, and you'll be able to relate to him, I think, very easily. We've been working our way through a series I've called Foundations, it's just looking at some of the more foundational truths that are introduced in the first few chapters of the Bible here, and I've decided to title this message, How God Works how God works. And I know that sounds kind of presumptuous, like I'm putting God in a box and saying, God, this is the way you have to work. I'm not doing that. Let me assure you that God can work any way He wants to, and He certainly doesn't need to listen to me. Um, However, today's message will give you an idea of how God normally chooses to work according to the pattern that we see in Scripture. A couple of times I have mentioned to you uh, over the last couple of weeks, that in Genesis 3 through 11, so starting with the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, going through the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11, that whole period, God has basically been playing defense. Satan has been on the offensive. Satan has been doing his best to like completely corrupt the human race. He got a pretty good start back in Genesis chapter 3 when he got Adam and Eve to fall, and he's trying to finish the job. He's trying to do a complete work of it and to just corrupt us totally, and he's made some very real progress in that direction. But God has been doing things over these last eight chapters or so to make sure that doesn't happen. 
first by bringing the great flood and, and rescuing righteous Noah and his family, then by establishing human government as a kind of, of safeguard, and then a couple weeks ago we saw by confusing the language of the people at the Tower of Babel, one effect of which was dividing people up into smaller groups so that they wouldn't be able to do so much damage. Well, in chapter 12 of Genesis, God is no longer doing damage control. Uh, here is where God finally goes on the offense and begins to move the ball down the field in the other direction. And the verses that we're going to look at this morning are actually one of the great turning points in all of history. Because this is where God stops damage control. This is where God stops just counterpunching and begins to put into motion his great plan to save humanity and to restore the world. And here's Here's the crazy part of this plan, crazy from our perspective, and that is that God is going to use us to do it. God is going to use human beings. He's going to use frail and fallen human beings to defeat Satan and turn the whole world around. So let's go ahead and look at our passage for today. It's Genesis 12, just the first three verses. First three verses of Genesis 12. It'll also be up on the screen, I believe. Let's read them together. It says this, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. A few weeks ago when uh, Pastor West was preaching on Genesis uh, 3, 15 to 16, we saw how God was going to use the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. In other words, these, these creatures that God had made into whom he had put his own image, but whom the devil had corrupted and, and compromised, that, that we human beings were not beyond redemption. Not only that, but that, that we were going to be the means by which God would accomplish the defeat of Satan and the redemption of the whole world. God was saying to Satan, okay, I'm going to defeat you. And you see these puny little creatures I made? I'm going to use them to do it. I'm going to use them. And he basically dared Satan to try and stop him. But now as God begins to execute his plan, now in Genesis 12, he does the same thing. He basically calls his shot. And he dares Satan to stop him. And he says, Satan, not only am I going to use man to redeem man, but I'm going to show you the man and the family and the nation that I'm going to use to do it. I'm going to tell you who it is right now. It's this guy, Abraham. Satan's like, him? Yeah, him. And if you've ever wondered why the Jewish people have had a target on their back for pretty much their entire existence as a people, you don't have to look any farther than these verses. Because Satan has always had a vested interest in destroying them since God told him in Genesis 12 that they will be the human channel for the salvation of God's people and the devil's ultimate demise. So to make a very, very, very long story short, the verses before you here, the promise to bless all the nations of the world, all the families of the world through Abraham is a promise about Jesus. And the rest of the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi really forms a bridge between this promise and its fulfillment in Christ and how that all happens. 
And in fact, it goes farther than that because today in the missionary church, as we take the gospel of Jesus Christ to all the nations of the world, as you saw reflected in that video today, and as we do today in the Christian Missionary Alliance, as we take the gospel to the whole world, we are actually fulfilling not just Jesus' great commission in Matthew 28, we're fulfilling Genesis 12.3, God's promise to Abraham. So point number one this morning is simply this, that God has chosen human beings to accomplish his purpose in the world. You've got point two up there actually too, so if you could back it up, that'll be good. God has chosen human beings to accomplish his purposes in the world. He's not going around us. He's not going through us. He is going through us. He's going to use us. No matter how broken, no matter how messed up we become, God is using us to redeem the world. And before we move on to the next idea, let me just give you a very direct challenge for you and your walk with Jesus. In view of this great turning point in history, in view of Genesis 3 to 11 and how God changes gears in, in Genesis 12, in view of the fact that God called Abraham not just to be blessed but to be a blessing, let me ask you this question. To all of you today who are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, here's the question. How much of your Christian life is simply damage control? What percentage of your life in Christ is damage control? How much of your Christian life is merely you know, playing defense, which means trying to keep yourself and your family out of major trouble, trying to stay healthy, praying for God's protection, trying to get through life and, and get your loved ones through life without a lot of pain and adversity and failure? Is your Christian life kind of like the old video game from the 1980s Anybody ever play Frogger? Remember that game? You had a frog. And the frog had to get across the highway, and there were trucks, and there were cars, and, or you had to get across a stream, and there were logs coming across, and you had to get your frog to the other side. So you moved it, and you tried to get your frog. And, but half the time, you got splatted by the truck, right? Or you got knocked off the log or something like that. And is that your Christian life? Are you just trying to get to the other side without being run over by a truck or knocked off a log? Or is there more to it? Or is your life increasingly characterized by going on the offensive for God? Not just being protected for and provided for by Him, but looking to be used by Him to change the things around you and the people around you for good. And I think one way, if you're wondering how to answer this question, one way is to look at your prayer life. Assuming that you do spend time in prayer, assuming that your prayer in some sense is, is legitimate and genuine and reflects the heart that you have, What's your prayer life like? Is your prayer time all about asking God to protect you and heal you and forgive you and meet your daily needs? Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to pray those things. In fact, it's very important that you pray those things. In fact, that's what the second half of the Lord's Prayer is all about, right? Forgive us. Give us our daily bread. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's good to pray those things, but let me ask you, what about the first part of the prayer? Your name be glorified through me. Your kingdom come through me in my life. Your will be done in my life. Are you, are you praying those things? Are you, are you mostly just praying for God to protect you and provide for you, or, or are you praying for him, listen, to change you and to use you? To change you and to use you. I know that's a pretty convicting question, but it's one we all need to ask. As individuals, as a church, as your pastor, we need to ask this question. It's a challenge. Now, you might say, okay, but can God really use me? 
Because when I look at my life, I'm a mess. And I'm not really very special a person. Well, let's take a minute and look at this guy Abraham, okay? Because here is where I think you might eventually find a little bit of encouragement. I, I, want, I want to come back to these verses, but, but in addition to that, what I want to do today is I want to make a few observations that kind of come from the rest of Abraham's life. And, and some of you are familiar with what happens to him and, and what he goes through, but I, w- I want to make mention of some things that he experiences in his life as a whole. Um, but let me just share with you some very striking things about this man's story. First of all, the story of Abraham is the first time in the Bible that we really get to know one of the human characters. I mean, we've met Adam and Eve, we've met Cain and Abel, you know, we've met some other people, but, but for the most part, we haven't really been invited into their lives. I mean, think about Noah. Noah was the subject of four whole long chapters of Scripture, Genesis 6 through 9, but it, it, I don't know if you noticed this, but he never really got any lines in the drama. He just does what God tells him to do, and we can imagine what might be going on in Noah's mind, but we never really find out for sure because we're never really let into that. Abraham is totally different. He's the first Bible character that actually gets to be three-dimensional. We hear not just what God says to him, but what he says to God. Abraham, and for that matter his wife Sarah, are are the first people we really get to, to, to walk with. We get to walk with Abraham through his successes and his failures, through difficult decisions and tough times and major crises of faith and family conflict and loss. So, if the first big idea that God uses is that God uses us, people like you and me, to accomplish his purposes in the world, the second big idea is just this, that this process is difficult and it's messy. The process is difficult and it's messy. Following God's direction in your life and walking with him is not a smooth, easy road. It just isn't. It's very bumpy, it's full of twists and turns, and it's full of dark places where you cannot see what's coming next. Rascal Flats was wrong. Life is not a highway. It's it's more like a little path through the woods in which you can't see around the corners. I want you to imagine being Abraham in verse 1 here, and I, I want you to note that, that his name is still Abram. Okay, I'm not going to go into why it changes and all that. God's going to change his name later on, so you might hear me say either one. Usually I'll call him Abraham. But, but I want you to imagine getting these instructions. Leave your family. Leave your inheritance behind. Leave the country where you're living and go somewhere else. Where? I'll tell you when you get there. That's what he just said. For now, just leave. Does this sound like the invitation to an easy life? I don't think so. It is an invitation of great blessing. Yes, we saw that, and we'll see more about that later. But this is the invitation to a life of uncertainty and risk. In other words, it's the invitation to a life of faith. Now, we're going to learn more about Abraham's faith in the next couple times we look at him. But for now, let me remind you this, that God's call to Abram, as radical as it sounds, get ready, is also the same call that he issues to each of us. Because the call to follow Jesus is never a call to stay in the same place. It just isn't. It's a call to move. Now, not necessarily to change locations, although it might be. 
Not necessarily a call to leave the comfort and the companionship of your extended family, although it might be. It might be. Wes and Danielle have a couple of really cute twin nieces down in South Carolina. Some of you have probably seen their pictures online. But I'll tell you this, as a grandfather who loves to see his little grandson whenever he can, when I see pictures of those sweet little girls, I often think of their paternal grandparents, Ken and Deborah Blackwell, who have followed the Lord to Guinea and then to Senegal and now live thousands of miles away from their grandkids. Now, God, God may not call you to give up the blessing of being near your family, but he may. I'll tell you this, God will call you to give up something. God will call you to give up something if you follow him. Maybe a plan or a dream, maybe a relationship, maybe a promotion at work, maybe some material comforts. I, I can't tell you the details, but like the call of Abraham, the call to follow Jesus is a call into the unknown because when you say yes to him, you don't know where he's going to take you. All you know is that he's going to go with you. Are you willing to walk away from the things that make your life peaceful and secure if Jesus calls you to do it? Do you understand that when God came into your life and he forgave you freely by the blood of Jesus, his son, that was something you didn't earn. It was a free gift. He made you a new person. But do you realize that when he did that, he changed your whole destiny? And he made you new. That conversion to Christ is not just another mile marker along the road. It's a U-turn. It's not just some certificate we pick up on the way, like a driver's license or a diploma. It's a whole new life. And in many ways, it's a life of difficulty because some people won't understand you. Some people will oppose you. Some may try to hurt you because the life that you're living for God makes them feel guilty and uncomfortable. You may find yourself leaving behind some worldly blessings that you might otherwise have expected in order to follow Jesus into whatever he calls you to do. Okay, that's the difficult part. That's the difficult part. What about the messy part? I said it was messy. Why is it messy? How is it messy? Let me assure you that Abraham's life, after he said yes to God, okay, and that was awesome that he did, right? That's a hard thing. He, 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 he followed God. He obeyed. But after he obeyed, after he said yes to God, his life was not just a series of amazing miracles, one after the other. Abraham lived to be about 175 years old, but God only intervened on a handful of occasions. And there was only one miracle involved that Abraham got to personally experience, and that was the birth of his son Isaac. Most of his life was just plugging along, digging wells, dealing with difficult people around him, trying to please the Lord, trying to love his family, and get this, failing on multiple occasions. And these were not little failures. You think your testimony isn't so powerful because you've stumbled and fallen some in the years since you've come to know Christ? Look at Abraham. Not once but twice did he put the purity of his marriage and the life of his wife in jeopardy by lying to some powerful man and telling him that Sarah was his sister, not his wife. Getting her sucked into the harem of some ruler all because he gave in to fear. That happened twice. Another time, he and Sarah, together, desperate for a child, took matters into their own hands and had Abraham conceive a child through basically a surrogate mother, leading to all sorts of, of pain and tension and loss in their family. So let me ask you a question. Have you ever given in to fear and failed God in some situation? 
Have you ever taken matters into your own hands and not waited on God's direction and ended up hurting yourself and other people in the process? Have you ever said or done something very unwise that brought stress and pain into your marriage? This is real life, folks. But you know what? God uses real people who have real lives, messy lives, in other words, people like you and me, to accomplish his purposes. That's what Abraham was like. He was a real, messy dude. And his life was not just a series of victories. But if Abraham is so much like us, if Abraham really isn't all that different than us in a lot of ways, then how did he end up becoming such a great hero of the faith, right? How did he end up becoming Abraham such that we have, you know, songs named after him, Father Abraham, you know, what? How did he get to be that guy? What made the difference to him? And is it anything that we can benefit from in our own lives? Well, I think Abraham's mission statement in life is really found in Genesis 17.1, where God appears to him, and he gives him a new name, and he says, he says, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and multiply you greatly. Now, God is obviously doing something huge in Abraham's life. He's going to bless him mightily. But what is Abraham's part in all this? Did you catch it? Two things. Remember? Walk before me and be blameless. He said, walk before me. Live your life as you do this. Be conscious that I am always with you. Pray. Fellowship with me. Walk with me. Include me. And then, be blameless. Now, what does that mean? Because If blameless means morally perfect, then we better give up on seeing Abraham as any kind of an example, right? Because that that ship has sailed. Well, when we met Noah a couple weeks ago, we found out that blameless does not mean morally perfect in the sense of being sinless. At the time he hears these words from God, Abraham still has one of his big failures in the future. He's 99 years old, so you think, you know, by the time a guy's 99, he should have figured it out by now. But he hasn't. He's not perfect. He keeps walking with God, though. He doesn't give up. He just keeps walking with God. He does his best to obey God. He keeps plugging away. He keeps fellowshipping with God. And as he does this, God changes him one day at a time, one decision at a time, to make him more righteous in God's sight. That's what it means to walk with God and live blamelessly, to grow in your faith, to set your heart on pleasing Him even if you don't totally succeed every time. That's what Abraham did. Here's the third big idea I get from the survey of Abraham's life. As God accomplishes His purposes through people, He changes them along the way. As God accomplishes His purposes through us, He changes us along the way. Think about this. If, if God only wanted to use Abraham as a change agent, you know, kind of as, uh, as to, to do his mission, then why did God move Abraham all this way? Why did he take him so far away from home? Abraham grew up in a place called Ur, um, not far from the place where they had built the Tower of Babel, actually, and probably not all that long after it was built. So this is a pretty corrupt place, and it's in need of a lot of help. The archaeologists who have excavated the city of Ur have discovered that by this time they were already deeply into the worship of false gods. They they were in trouble. So if you're going to give someone a mission to change the world, why not let him stay right there in Babylon and fight the culture wars, you know? Why, 
why, why send them all the way off to Canaan? Because in, in Babylon, that's where the action is, not, not out in the desert wilderness of, of, of Canaan, hundreds of miles away. But God, as he often does, is playing the long game here. He's looking not at what a fired-up Abraham might accomplish in Ur, but God's looking at what he can accomplish through a transformed Abraham and his whole family over the long haul, over the long haul. And sometimes we just hate that God works that way, right? We don't want to hear over the long haul. We don't want to hear wait. We, we pray. We ask God to change things, change the situation, change my situation, change my job, change my marriage, change this problem, change my family, change my circumstances. And what does God say? He says often, actually, I'm more interested in changing you to make you more like my son. Because we read that verse in Romans 8 that we love so much, Romans 8, 28, that says, God works in all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And we love that verse, but then we get to the next verse and we find out what God means by good, which means conformed to the image of his son. That's what the good is. Abraham had answered God's call back in Ur, and he had believed God's promise that God would bless him, and he left everything, and he followed God into a new life and a new country and a new way of depending upon God for everything. And in the process... He was signing up for a lifetime of transformation, of walking with God, just like we do. We accept God's free gift of eternal life, and we're signing up for a lifetime of transformation. It doesn't happen all at once. God is going to use the next 50 years plus to make Abraham a man of greater patience, greater endurance, greater love, greater courage, and greater faith. And when we get to Genesis chapter 22 on New Year's Day, which is when Abraham takes his final exam, as it were, we're going to see the results of God's working in this man's life through all these years of waiting and trusting and suffering and praying and falling down and getting back up again and following God on all the little things as well as the big things. Remember earlier when I asked you if you were praying for God to change you and use you? please remember that as much as he wants to use you, he's even more interested in changing you, in seeing you grow up into the new person that you started to become the day that you gave your life to Christ. It's very interesting to me that in Galatians chapter 5, Paul in Galatians chapter 5, he, he's talking about the Christian life, and he, he, he goes through what he calls the works of the flesh. And Paul gives a big, long list of all these bad things that we're not supposed to do. All these worldly activities that should not characterize our lives as Christians. Don't do this, 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 this. And they're all activities. And so after you've seen this big list of works of the flesh, what do you expect when Paul has a comma there and goes on to the opposite? What you'd probably expect is, well, those are the works of the flesh. These are the works of the Spirit. These are the things that you should do. But that's not what we get, is it? Instead, what do we get? We get the fruit of the Spirit. We get a bunch of character qualities, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, goodness, self-control. Apparently, growing in Christ is less about doing and more about becoming. Walk with me and be blameless. 
God says, I'm going to use you to accomplish my purposes, but more than that, as I do that, I'm going to make you into a whole new person. What did Jesus say to his disciples? He said, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. I will make you fishers of men. The word there in Matthew means to make, manufacture, or construct. Jesus said later to them, when the, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Power to be my witnesses in the whole world. My brothers and sisters, he's not just using you, he's changing you. And learning to walk blameless before him is not just a matter of avoiding sinful activities. It's even more a matter of developing Christ-like qualities as the Spirit works in your life and as you follow him. <clears throat> as we close this morning... And we're going to go to communion in, in, in a couple minutes. But let me just make one last observation. Abraham is given a very, and we'll learn more about him next, next, uh, week, next week and then on New Year's. But um, Abraham's given a very special title in the Bible. And on a couple of different occasions, he is called the friend of God. Abraham is the friend of God. Isn't, wouldn't you like to be called the friend of God? That's an awesome title. In fact, in Genesis 18, there's an amazing passage. We didn't talk a whole lot about Sodom and Gomorrah, but God is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. He's got this plan to do it. And he says to himself, he says, he says how, could I, how could I make these plans without telling Abraham? Why would I make these plans and not tell Abraham? Isn't that amazing? Why would God say that? And because because God shares his plan with Abraham, Abraham actually gets the opportunity to go in and rescue his nephew Lot so he doesn't get destroyed along with everybody else. Why did God do this? Why did God share this plan with Abraham? I'll tell you why. Because friends share that kind of information with one another. And Abraham was God's friend. And lest you think that that is one way in which you could never be like Abraham because he was the friend of God, think again. Because 2,000 years later, Give or take, Jesus is in a room with his disciples and he tells his followers, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. Why? Because I've told you everything that the Father's told me. I've shared it with you. Because servants and masters don't have that kind of relationship, but friends do. So I'm sharing with you, just like God shared with Abraham. And then he said this, Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. God was able to call a very imperfect man like Abram, Abraham his friend. Why? Because he knew that one day he would give up his life for Abraham in the person of Christ. One of the great blessings of the forgiveness that we have in Jesus through his death on the cross is that the way has now cleared for us to be friends with Jesus. That is, friends with God himself. We celebrate that blessing every time we come to this table. This is the table of friendship. Jesus said to his disciples, a lot of things he said to his disciples that night, but one of the, the really cool things to me is when Jesus said, I've been wanting so long to have this Passover with you. Why? Because you're my friends. We can be Jesus' friends because he's given his life for us. Let's pray as the elders come forward.